May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In 1970, a British couple had two paintings stolen from their house. The first one was called Still Life of Fruit on a Small Table with a Small Dog. <laughs> I thought that was a great title. It was painted by Paul Gauguin, I think is his, how you say his name, a French artist. And the other by uh, Pierre Bonnard, the girl with two chairs. Apparently three men had devised a plan, a well-devised plan, to heist these paintings out of this home. What they had done is they, they arrived, two of them were dressed as police officers, and one of them as a technician for a burglar alarm company. They claimed that they had a distress call and they needed to check out the alarm. And so the only person at home at the time was a, a housekeeper, and so she allowed them into the home, and the men went in, and under the guise of inspecting the burglar alarm, were able to remove these two paintings from their frames, roll them up, and then leave the home undetected. But here's where things get really interesting. Not long after that, a couple days later, supposedly, um, the, a, a railway worker on a French um, railroad found these two paintings in an overhead bin on the car, on a railroad car. He had no idea that they were valuable at all, thought that they were just left over, put them in the lost and found, sure that somebody would turn up and ask for them, but no one ever did. And in 1975, the railway company was going through this cache of lost and found stuff and decided to have an auction, just get rid of it. A man happened to be at the auction. He worked for Fiat in, in France, an auto worker. Just kind of enjoyed art, didn't have any money to speak of. Bought these two paintings together for $25, thinking that they were nice and attractive. He would just hang them in his home, and that's what he did. He put the two paintings in his kitchen in France and lived there with them hanging in his kitchen for the next 30 or so years. He retires, moves to Sicily. His son lives in Sicily. He goes there, and I think he's in a nursing home now, this man. And just this year, his son is kind of getting rid of some of his stuff. Takes photos of these two paintings that his dad has had hanging in his home for 30 years that he bought for $25. And puts them up on an internet website for sale. And that's when they were noticed as being stolen. The police were called. They went and inspected realized this man had nothing to do with it. He simply bought these at, a, at a, um, this auction. But they told them that these two paintings together were worth $50 million. And he's had them hanging in it. Well, a little more of a twist to the story. Sir Mark Kennedy was the original owner, he and his wife, and both of them had passed away. And so they died never getting their paintings back. And now the police don't know to whom to give these paintings. I mean, who do they belong to? The guy who bought it for $25 or the heirs of the original owners? And so there's a little dispute. And I thought about how that's just sort of like my luck, you know. When it's time for me to claim something, I'm not going to be around to claim it anymore, you know. Just a little late to the show. And then how there's other times where you don't want to claim something that you should claim. One day I was working in Mercy Hospital. I was a copier technician, and I, I was um, I was trying to repair this copier. We had there's a big uh, hospital in Springfield, and I'm working on this uh, machine right next to a nurse's station. And um, over the intercom, you know, for the whole hospital, with the owner of the green Rolls Royce in the doctor's parking lot, please move your car. It's blocking the loading zone. I kind of chuckled about that a little bit. Went back to working. A few minutes later, with the owner of the green Rolls Royce in the doctor's parking lot, please move your car. It's blocking the loading zone. That was odd. 
A few minutes later, the same thing with the owner of the green Rolls Royce in the doctor's parking lot. Please come move your car. It's blocking the loading zone. And one of the nurses say, says to me, he doesn't want to go and move it because he's with a patient right now and he doesn't want to admit that it's his green Rolls Royce that he's out there, you know, needs to move. And I thought about that. You know, some poor soul was in room 423 worrying about how much their gallbladder surgery is going to cost. When their doctor walks out to move his green Rolls Royce, that's probably not the classiest move. And so he was probably quite smart to do that. Sometimes you don't want to say, yeah, that's mine. I mean, maybe you're a young guy and you like Taylor Swift music and you don't want to admit it. We're not going to judge you. Of course we're going to judge you. Okay? Um, or, or maybe you, maybe you like to uh, play Farmville on Facebook. You know, hey, whatever. You know, you don't, don't tell us. There's some things you just don't want to admit. I don't know what it is for you, but sometimes it's hard to say, yeah, that's me. Today is Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Just a few days from today, though, will be a time where he's, um, he's beaten, rejected, crucified, murdered. But before we get there, back up just a little bit. Jesus travels into Jerusalem. You know this story. You've probably, or at least maybe you heard it. Jesus travels into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. People are celebrating his entry. But this is something that he has done every year of his life, probably his entire life. We even have a story in Luke's Gospel, the only story of his childhood, where he's done exactly this. He's traveled to Jerusalem for this festival called Passover and was accidentally left by his family in Jerusalem. Now, anybody who has more than one child knows what it's like to leave a kid behind. It happens, right? Just from time to time. Um, And he was left in Jerusalem... And his parents are, are, you know, they're a guest that find him gone, they return, and and Luke tells us this story. And it makes perfect sense. Large crowds. Jesus lives up in Galilee, way up in the north. And these large crowds, none of his extended family, but, but entire neighborhoods are moving and traveling down to Jerusalem to go to this festival. One scholar I saw said that at the time of Jesus' birth, or his life, there were about 30,000 people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. But during Passover, that number would swell to over 200,000. So imagine a small town of 30,000 people in a, in a week going to 200,000. Imagine the pressure on the infrastructure, the crowds, the chaos, the bumping and shoving. I mean, it had to be, it had to be quite, uh, you know, just unsettling. What's more, Jesus is a Galilean. And I think for years, I kind of thought of Galileans as kind of like just from a different neighborhood. You know, they were like the same thing as people who lived in Jerusalem, only just a little different. But they weren't at all. They were very culturally distinct from the people who lived in Jerusalem in the southern part called Judea. People who lived in Galilee were were much more rural, agrarian. They had a different sort of governmental system. They had a, a puppet king set up uh, by Rome, but uh, somebody who was who was at least aware of Jewish sensibilities. But in Judea, in Jerusalem, you've got Pontius Pilate, a Roman soldier, a prefect, a governor, who doesn't care about Jewish sensibilities and just sort of runs roughshod over them. And so their, their, their lives are, are kind of distinct. I think that the one I was trying to think of a good analogy, it would be like comparing a, a Scotsman to a, an Englishman. You know, they're both Britons. But never call an Englishman a Scotsman or vice versa, right? 
Uh, if you do, you had better be ready to fight because they're not the same. Imagine somebody a little closer to home who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and someone else who lives in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, they're both Americans. They both speak English. They may even both like baseball. But they are about as distinct as you can possibly get, aren't they? I mean, they're not the same. And, and this is Jesus. He is a Galilean. He's one of the hicks from up north who comes down every year to the festival. And the festival crowd, you know, the, the, the locals, they're not real happy to see them coming. Abby and I used to, we, we've lived in several places, but we've lived in two small towns particularly. One in Kentucky and one here at Circleville, Ohio. In Kentucky, a little town called Mount Sterling. 5,000 people lived in Mount Sterling when we lived there. The entire county, 24,000 people. Okay? Tiny little town, tiny little county, eastern Kentucky, and every year they would have this festival called Court Days. It was awful. I mean, it was like a, a swap meet and gun show and carnival rides and, you know, cheese on a stick or whatever, butter on a stick. I don't know whether they sold, you know, awful food that would just, you know, not good for you at all. But in our little dinky town, on the Saturday of court day, we would go from a population of 5,000 to 50,000. And in the first year, it was fantastic, right? And the second year, it was fun. And the third year, we left town, you know? We didn't want to be anywhere around this stuff. Same thing in Circleville. I had this thing called the uh, called Pumpkin Show, the greatest free show on earth. Okay? Little dinky town, 13,000 people. It swells to over 100,000 people on certain days of the festival. The entire city center is shut down. Kids are let out of school for an entire week. It's, I mean, it's pandemonium in that town. And the first year is wonderful. And the second year is fun. And the third year, we're out of here. And Jesus is one of those people who's coming into the town. Now imagine the people in Jerusalem. They see Him coming. And for a long time I wondered how it was that the crowds cheered Jesus on day one, on Palm Sunday. And they, they were ready to crucify Him on Good Friday. They're different crowds. The crowd that's taken Him into the city are His people. They're His friends. They're the people that He's lived among and with. They're, they're celebrating His place there in, in uh, the city. But... But the people who live there, they just see him as another one of these hick Galileans. In fact, you hear it in the lesson. Who is this? The whole city's like, who, what's all this excitement? Who is this guy? It's Jesus, the prophet, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. Ooh. You can almost kind of feel them say, well, we were only you, the prophet. But when we heard that he was from Galilee, maybe not so much. But it gets a little bit more interesting. Because on this day, on this time when Jesus comes into town, he does something bold, something decisive, and something provocative. He has set up a meeting. He has a friend who lives nearby. And he's told this friend, I'm going to see it, send a couple men, and they're going to come and get a donkey. I need to borrow it for the day. And the friend apparently has set up this thing, and so on this such and such a day, there'll be this donkey tied up out front. When they come to get it, let them have it. And they bring the donkey to Jesus. The men do as he's told. And, and they, they, they see what's going on. Now, you have to get this image in your mind, though. Hundreds, maybe thousands of pilgrims walking. Every one of them walking. Nobody rides an animal because nobody can afford one. Even a donkey was a very costly animal to have. So, I mean, only among wealthy, wealthy people do you have beasts of burden like this. Horses are unheard of. 
But Jesus wouldn't want one anyway in this case. He, he borrows a donkey from a wealthy man, and, and the friends know what's going to happen. He's going to be sitting on top of this donkey. And what's going to happen when you see this crowd of people and a man raised up among them? Everybody's going to see him. Everybody's going to know what he's doing. And they get it, don't they? They get it. His friends start throwing coats on the donkey. Let's make this thing colorful. Let's make it, let's make it fit for a king. And the people see it and they realize it. And they're grabbing palm branches, ripping them off trees and waving them. And they're shouting from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes our king. I mean, this is a great day. Jesus is, say, he is saying that there is no ambiguity here. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the King of Israel. There's just one little problem. There's somebody who already thinks he is the King over Israel. And he, he lives in Rome. He's the Emperor, right? And there are people there who are, who are, who are keeping his back. A, a governor in Judea, a puppet king in Galilee. And so the people have to know, or they at least have to imagine, what's going to happen here. This is, a, this is going to be a confrontation. This is a, this is a capital crime. This is treason if he gets caught. What's going to happen? How is he going to get out of this? Maybe they expect an uprising, a sort of war of independence just to break out and the people to start fighting. But Jesus has no war machine. He hasn't collected a, a band of fighters around him. In fact, he's mounted on a donkey, which is a symbol of a king who comes in peace. And this has to be confusing. It has to be unbelievably confusing. And I wondered, I wondered if any of the people who were cheering him as king on that Palm Sunday were later embarrassed that they had done so. Oh no, he really didn't turn out to be the sort of king that we thought he was going to be. He didn't set us free. He didn't do what Zechariah was talking about. There's no salvation. We're not saved from these Romans. They're still in power. And maybe they cheered him one day and were embarrassed to do so the next. And maybe somewhere along the line, it was easy to say, of course I'm a Christian. For us. Of course I am. And then later felt a little embarrassed that we had done so. Oh, if you've ever been there, don't worry. You're not alone. You're in good company. By the end of this week, even Jesus' closest friends will deny that they had ever known him. But thanks be to God that his kingly reign does not depend upon our assent. And that he chooses us even when we're embarrassed to choose him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.